0: Amen. If you have your Bible, let's turn today to Romans chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of the pew. It's on page 940 in that Bible, and you're welcome to keep that Bible for yourself. If you don't have one of your own, we want you to have God's Word in your life uh, and in your home to be able to just pick it up and hear what God has to say. Uh, So let's uh, let's look together. Let's read. We're going to be in verses 4 and 5. Of Romans chapter 2, and I'll read us the first uh, five verses of the chapter as we get into it. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you the judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And here's our passage for today. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. One of the things that is happening here in these first couple of chapters of Romans, as, as we're in this section where the Holy Spirit, through Paul's pen is just bringing out very, very clearly in all kinds of ways over and over, bringing out that everybody needs to be saved. There is no person who is outside of the need to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. One of the things that is happening there is that the Apostle Paul is showing us that the Apocrypha is not Scripture. Now, why would I say that? Well, one of the things that is, has happened since Romans chapter 1, verse 18, is that Paul has been following along with something of the argument of a book that is not in your Bible called The Wisdom of Solomon. In chapters 11 through 14 of The Wisdom of Solomon, there is a, uh, an argument that is going on and on about the lostness of the pagan Gentile nations. And in the second half of Romans 1, Paul uses a lot of the same words that are there in the book of the Wisdom of Solomon, uses a lot of the same arguments that are there in the book of the Wisdom of Solomon. And now some would say, well, that means that we ought to have Catholic Bibles, because Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, as it's called in the Catholic Bible, it's, it's right there. And this question comes up sometimes, well, why is the Catholic Bible different from the Protestant Bible? Well, we're about to see one of those reasons why, but I'll just give you a brief explanation that there are these books that are called the Apocrypha, that were written between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that mostly have to do with the history of Israel, that have always, throughout all generations of Christianity, have been read by Christians, but have never been considered Scripture until the Roman Catholic Church adopted them as Scripture in response to the fact that Martin Luther did not. So sometimes you will run into, um, you know, you'll have a conversation with your, your Catholic friend or family member who will say what they have heard, which is Martin Luther took books out of the Bible, which is not the case. The fact is that there was never any church anywhere at any time that ever accepted those books as Scripture, until the Council of Trent in response to the Protestant Reformation, when the Council of Trent adopted what we call the Apocrypha and declared it to be Scripture at that time. So that's just something that's a little bit of an aside, but just so you kind of know what we're talking about when I bring up the wisdom of Solomon. But one of the places that we see that those books are not Scripture is right here. Because as Paul has been following along with the argument of the wisdom of Solomon. And as those who were his Jewish readers at this point, especially unbelieving Jewish readers, might have been nodding along and saying, yes, I have heard this before. You go get them, Paul. Those Gentile nations, those pagans, they are so bad. Well, where does the book of the wisdom of Solomon round this out? In Wisdom 15 verses 1 and 2, which again is not Scripture, which says, but you, our God, are good and true, slow to anger and governing all with mercy, for even if we sin, we are yours. That's the, the, big, the big capstone conclusion in wisdom of Solomon. Do you, but do you know where the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans goes with this instead? Not to say, oh, those pagan nations are bad, but if we sin, we're the people of God and it doesn't matter. That's what the wisdom of Solomon says. But do you know what Romans says? Romans says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. No excuse, O man, you who do the same things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice these things and judge them to yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God and those who would say what the wisdom of Solomon says, even if we sin, we are yours? Well, instead of that, we get to today's passage, which says, Are you presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's this feeling, well, if I am in, in a place where I know that I'm just I'm part of God's people, he's been good to me, I guess I can just let it slide, we'll be his people anyway, it'll be okay, this says... Do not presume on the riches of God's kindness. So what we have here is a kind call of God to repent. We looked at the first three verses last week while talking about this idea of hypocritical religion. But today we have God's kindness toward those hypocrites. God's kindness toward those who would do the very same things that they pass judgment on others for doing. And that kindness is poured out richly and offered richly, and yet it runs out for those who will not repent. So let's look first of all at verse 4. It says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And before we come to those words, do you presume, before we talk about what is happening on the part of sinful, unregenerate man here, let's talk about what's happening on the part of God. We have a huge contrast here between God and man. Everywhere you look in the Bible, there's a big contrast between God and man. But let's think first about God. Here's what it says about God. It says that God, even toward those who are lost sinners, and not even just toward those who are lost sinners, but toward those who are absolutely hypocrites about being lost sinners. That God has a, a richness of kindness and forbearance and patience. Wow. That forbearance. Uh, do you know what the forbearance is? That, that is holding back from punishment. When it talks about God having forbearance here, one of the things that's built into that is that it would be okay and just and right of God if he were to fully punish the sinner at the moment of their sin. It would be okay of God any time that any sinner sins to rain down fire from heaven on them, just like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah in that moment. He could do that, and he would be just. There could be no one in the universe who could stand up against God if he were to immediately unleash his wrath and say, God, you are not fair, because it would be exactly fair. It would be just. A sinner against the holy, infinite, eternal God of the universe deserves immediate punishment. But God is a God who gives what what he calls here forbearance, that he holds back. He holds back, and it says that he has Patience, forbearance, and patience. That patience is sometimes it's translated as long suffering. He is willing to wait a long time as sinners sin against him. Such a long time that so many will look and say, "Where is the promise of his coming?" It seems that ever since the creation of the world, things go about in the same way that they have always gone. This is the argument of, of the unbelievers from 2 Peter. Because the reason that that happens is because God is patient. God is patient. It, it says that when God holds back his judgment, when he holds back his wrath, when he is patient, that there is a richness of his Kindness. God not only doesn't immediately punish every sinner, he not only shows patience, but God even pours out kindness. This thing that, that in theological terms we call this common grace. The, the kind of grace that every person in the entire world experiences because he has given us life and breath and everything. He he has given us the gift to be alive, and to whatever extent we have what we have, that that is a gracious gift from God. That, in fact, that that is the reason that we are told by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to love our enemies. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I have, unfortunately, I have heard the argument before, well, God does not love everybody. And I understand what people mean by that. This is is one of those mistakes that sometimes happens when you you first get into uh, and and recognize the Bible's teaching about what we call Calvinism, or the sovereignty of God and salvation, the election of some, the reprobation of others. That is true, and that is right there in the Scriptures. We're going to get to that very, very plainly when we get to Romans chapter 9. But a misunderstanding of that would be to then say, well, God has no love for the reprobate. Well, Jesus says he does. In fact, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. And Jesus is not a hypocrite. Jesus loves his enemies. And here is the reason that Jesus gives that we are to love our enemies it says so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven he's saying it directly he is saying God loves his enemies and and here's what he says for for God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust what 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 this shows us is not something about the character of those who experience God's mercy and god's common grace what this does is this shows us about the character of god this is the kind of god that we have that that he is is not only a god who is is going to punish sin in full but he is the kind of god who is rich in mercy he he is the god who announced about himself that that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness And he shows that slowness to anger and that abundance of loving kindness even to hypocrites, even to reprobate hypocrites who will not eventually go to heaven. That he is still in this way holding out his hands all day to a stubborn and rebellious people, as he puts it. He is showing mercy and kindness and riches of kindness in holding back in showing patience. And that just shows us something of the nature of this God that we serve. Now, the way that he is speaking here, this has primarily to do, all of chapter 2 has primarily to do with the way that God is dealing with the Jewish people, and especially the Jewish people who had rejected their Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that what had happened is that that Christ came to his own and his own did not know him. And, and, and many of these who claim to love God, they had God standing in front of them in the flesh. And what did they do? They crucified the Lord of glory. Now, if it were up to us to say, well, what should happen then? We, we would say, well, that's it, that's over. But God is showing an, an abundance, a richness of kindness and forbearance and patience toward them. Even as as Jesus came first to give salvation, he says to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles, there are so many among that Jewish people who not only didn't embrace Jesus but literally crucified him, that God is showing them mercy. We see that in the history of Israel. Over and over in the history of Israel, there were attempts to wipe out this people, and they have continued throughout the ages. And yet, God has preserved that people. You do not hear about the Hittites anymore; they're gone. You don't hear about the Edomites or the Hivites or the Jebusites; those are those are all gone. But the Israelites, God has preserved them. We know them; they're our friends. They're our neighbors. We drive past their synagogues on the way here. It's an amazing and remarkable mercy of God as he has continued to show that mercy to the children of Abraham, even as they crucified the Lord of glory. But I want to say this, too. Even though this is especially addressed to those who were among the Jewish people, assumed that they didn't need to repent and believe in Jesus, this is addressed to us, too. Do you know who else it was that crucified the Lord of glory besides the Jewish nation? It was you and me. We are the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. We are the ones who put Jesus on the cross by our sin against the holy God. And God has shown us a richness of mercy and forbearance and patience and kindness. A richness of that. Oh, it's so good. Why would God do that, though? Why would it be that God would show mercy, kindness, patience, even to what we call the reprobate, those who will not eventually go to heaven? Well, it says in Romans 9, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So we have here the character of God, a God who is so good that he is willing to show a richness of kindness, even to the reprobate. But let's look at man. What does it say about man? It says, or do you presume... On the riches of his kindness, I didn't focus very much on the the word riches there, but just think of that, riches, riches. We we uh, spent a, a day as a family yesterday in Manhattan, and and um, we walked past the Ferrari store, and uh, you know I'm I'm just. I'm not I'm not Joel Osteen, I'm not trying to get a Ferrari or something, but I just I'm just a twelve year old kid when I see these things. And we stop and we look at them and there's this just this beautiful car. I looked at the price tag and said I think it's at seven hundred and fourteen thousand dollars. And I told my kids, I don't even make that in a year at the church. And and we just we look at these things and we just say, That that is incredible what is out there. The riches, the wealth. As that is nothing compared to the riches of God's kindness, of God's mercy. You know, if you were determined enough, there's ways to get enough money to get that car. But you can't just say to yourself, well, I'm going to have the patience of God shown toward me. You can't just say to yourself, I'm going to work my way into getting God's kindness and forbearance and patience. It is a richness of a special kind that is poured out that you cannot get from any other source except the kind inclinations of God himself. It is so far beyond. And I'm not even just talking here about the ultimate riches for those of us who are in Christ who will, who will see him face to face and have the full inheritance and glory in heaven forever. That's unspeakably larger than even this that I'm talking about. But, but even the mercy that he shows towards sinners now in this life, it's called here this richness of kindness. People do not realize what they have. People don't get it. And that's what it's saying here. Do you presume on the riches? When it says presume upon... Some other translations say, do you despise the riches? What it's getting at there with that word presume upon or despise, it's belittling of it. Counting it as a light thing when in fact it is a heavy thing. Counting it as little when it is massive. It's counting something as not worth much when it is priceless. It's like somebody who goes through their grandmother's house and throws away a priceless painting because they've just always seen it hanging there and thought it was ugly and didn't know what it was. Presuming on the riches of God's kindness. It's the same problem that's, that's spoken of back in chapter 1, verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's not just a problem of those people over there, those pagan people. This is a problem among religious people. Those who are among the Jewish nation, those who grew up with the Bible, it is a problem of saying, I do not thank God for what he's given me. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Every moment that we live not being punished for our sins is a gift from God. And it is a rich, merciful, gracious gift and we ought not to presume upon it. We're called to be a people who give thanks and not who say, well, I just have what I have. Whether you're religious or not, it is, it is this thinking of, of, well, I can just sin and God is good, so I'll be all right. Oh, you know what that is? That is belittling God. It's saying, God, you owe this to me. I'm used to this, so this must not be a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a very big deal. The, 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 this taking for granted of God's kindness. This, this presuming upon the riches of God, it is what's behind this question that I know you've heard before. Maybe you've asked this question before. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know what's built into that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? What's built into that question is a belittling of the mercy of God. God ought to have mercy on everybody. God ought to especially have mercy and and do good things for those that I consider to be good people. Well, there's two problems there. One is that Jesus said no one is good except God alone. The other problem is that God does not have an obligation to show mercy to anyone. If you have ten people, I just read where R.C. Sproul had preached this, I just read this yesterday, if you have ten people who, uh, who we consider to be good people, and God shows mercy to five, and gives justice to the other five, God is not unjust, It's not injustice for God to show justice to half the people. If he showed mercy on nine and not on one, or on one and not on nine, or on none, it's God's prerogative. It's not up to us to go to God and to say, here is who you must show mercy on. Why would you allow bad things to happen to good people? Do you know what God says about that? God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy Plain as that it's god's prerogative if we're going to god and saying you had better be fair then we are better be ready to be struck down in that in that moment but god is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and so when we see god's mercy in our lives even the fact that you're sitting here you know we we, we so often think to ourselves well If I am am working for God, if I'm seeking to honor God, then I I deserve to be able to pay my bills without worrying. Nobody deserves that. I I, I want that for you, but nobody deserves that. You may say to yourself, well, I I, I deserve, I have enough faith that I ought to have a pain-free body that functions properly. Nobody deserves that. It's a mercy from God when we have that. And we should thank God for that. We we can't sit around grumbling and complaining against God when he doesn't give it. God is the one who shows patience and mercy, and it's a richness of it. We don't presume, we don't belittle God's grace. What does God do in all this? Well, he calls people to repentance. This is the second half of verse 4 not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, this is, this is one of those mistakes that was happening among the Jewish people at this time, that, that continues to happen, not just among Jewish people, but among all kinds of people, is this assumption that if I am aware of God and I feel that God is being good to me, then I must be okay with God. Now, let, let me just give you an example here. All right? this, this is the thing that... This is a regular response that... And I've told you about this a few times before. This is a regular response that you will sometimes get from unbelieving people when you go to share the gospel with them. Um, there, there's a certain mindset that you'll encounter that says, I do not need to repent and believe because I have this list of reasons why I know that God is already on my side. That, that list of reasons usually includes some things that I've done for God and some things that God has done for me, as though this is sort of like an exchange. It's usually something like, well, I pray every day. That's what I've done for God. And here's what God has done for me. He has given me a great family, and my kids have grown up in a way that I'm proud of, and I've got grandkids, and I know that he's good to me. So I'm so glad that you're out here telling people about Jesus because he's on my side too. Or sometimes it's, it's something even more dramatic than that. Uh, it is not uncommon to hear someone say something like, I went through cancer and the doctors gave me a 5% chance of living. And I prayed, and I prayed hard, and I came through it, and I'm cancer-free. And I know that it was a miracle from God, and so I know that God is on my side. Now, when we hear these things, you know what we should do? We should absolutely thank and praise God for healing that person. And it may have even been an actual, literal miracle. But when someone has experienced that mercy from God, that doesn't mean, okay, now I'm good with God. God has put his stamp of approval on me. Here's what it says. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The fact that God has shown you kindness, the fact that God has shown anyone kindness, it says explicitly here in the scriptures that God's intention in that is to call you to repent, to open your eyes to the fact that He didn't have to show you that kindness as a sinner against Him. And that He has given you patience, that He has given you an ample opportunity to repent, that He is holding out His hands to you. Just as Jesus said to that massive crowd of people, Come, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what God is doing when He shows His kindness. He's not saying, You're good we're good. He's saying, I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. This is exactly what happened when Jesus went around and did his miracles. As he went through these cities of, of Galilee, uh, he, he would go from town to town, and he would, he would preach the gospel of the kingdom. He would preach his, his words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and he would heal people. And, and he had these massive crowds that would follow him And they would bring out all of their sick friends and relatives, and people who had been blind from birth, and and crippled, and lame, and all kinds of things, those who had leprosy. And Jesus just healed this massive number of people. But then later in his ministry, it says that he denounced the cities where he had done most of his mighty works because they did not repent. Do you hear that? so many of these people who, who, who came and, and experienced the miraculous healing of jesus they went away from it rejecting the the healer they went away from it rejecting his gospel rejecting him personally all they had been in it for was for the temporal mercies i guess i have a better body now things are better for me and they walked away when, in fact, the point wasn't to heal their bodies. The point was to heal their bodies to get to the better point, which is is to, for, to call them to repentance and to be saved. So he denounced the places where he had done most of his mighty works because they did not repent, it says in Matthew. Well, this is a priceless gift, a priceless gift to have this call, this patience from God. It, here, here's what the, the theologian Charles Hodge from from old Princeton Seminary back in the 1800s. Here's what he said. The goodness of God leads us to repent because it shows us our duty towards a being who is so kind and because it gives us ground to hope for acceptance. The goodness of God. Uh, That's what it does. It shows us that God is good. It shows us that God is willing to reach out his hands and to say, come to me, come to me but you know what God did in Isaiah 65 it said I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices a people who provoke me to my face continually you know what we have here we have the decree of God and the desire of God both expressed to us in Romans both of these things are true God has said very plainly that he has a decree. He has an ultimate will to save some and not to save others. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That is in God's hands. It's not in our hands. It is in God's hands. And God also has a legitimate desire, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, that he desires all people to be saved. He says in in Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Those two things seem contradictory, but they are both in the Bible. They are both true at the same time that God has a genuine desire that's even expressed right here with his patience meant to lead you to repentance even for the reprobate. And at the same time, his greater will of decree that some will be saved and others will not. Here's how it's put in 2 Peter 3, 9. As God shows this patience, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God has been patient toward you, don't presume upon the riches of his kindness. Don't say to yourself, I must be good. If God has given you just a home, and a family, and all of these things, and and let you live to this point, and you say to yourself, well, I must be all right. God is being patient. God is being patient. If you have not repented and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, His good works in your life don't mean that you don't need to. They're a call to do it, to turn to Him now. Now we have to ask, as it says here, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We have to ask, what is repentance? Because we talk about repentance. That word comes up all the time here. I wish it would come up all the time everywhere, but it comes up all the time here. So what are we talking about when we say repentance? different people think of different things when they hear that word. Some may think of going and sitting down with a priest and confessing their sins and and getting an assignment of what exactly to do after that. That's not what the Bible presents as repentance. Some think that it just has to do with feeling sorry. That's part of repentance, but that's not repentance. Some think that it means doing better in your life. That's not repentance. That is works. Works are good. I hope you will do better in your life. I hope I will do better in my life. But the doing is not repentance. The doing is what ought to flow from repentance, but it's not repentance. What repentance is, it is a change of mind. That literally, repent, it's, it's a Latin word. It means rethink it. It, it means you, what, what you were thinking before, you realize you were wrong, and you change your mind about it. That that's the most literal meaning of it. And what is it that you change your mind about? Well, you change your mind about your own sin and about God's holiness? You you, you turn your mindset from love of sin to love of God in Christ. That is repentance. It, it, it is a twin grace with faith. That's the way it's expressed in our uh, in our own statement of faith here. Uh, that that it's a twin grace that it comes together with faith. There is no such thing as a person who has faith in the Lord Jesus and does not have repentance about their sins. And there is no such thing as a person who has genuine repentance about their sins apart from faith in the Lord Jesus. They come together in a way they are two sides of the same coin, but repentance flows from faith. Faith does not flow from repentance. Repentance flows from faith. Let me tell you this, okay? I've told you this before but I don't know if everybody got it. You cannot make yourself believe by repenting. You cannot bring yourself to a place of righteousness before God by simply trying to address your own attitude towards your sin. You come to God and are justified, as we say, by faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot be justified by repentance alone. But if you genuinely believe, you will repent. There is no such thing as saving faith in Jesus Christ without repentance of sin. You can't make yourself believe by repenting, but if you believe, you will simultaneously repent. That's how this works. Here's the way that repentance is described in the Baptist Catechism. It says, repentance unto life. You know what? I'm going to pause right there, and I'm going to say there is such a thing as repentance that is not unto life. It's it's what's called in 2 Corinthians worldly grief. There's godly grief, and there's worldly grief. You, You can see worldly grief in Judas, where Judas deeply regretted what he had done to Jesus. But he didn't have godly grief. He didn't have repentance unto life. He had the kind of of worldly grief that led him to take his own life. I don't know whether he thought that by punishing himself that he would make it up to God and somehow inherit eternal life. I don't know what he thought, but it was worldly grief. It was not godly grief. That worldly grief, it says, "I, I regret that I sinned sometimes just because I regret that I got caught or because I regret the punishment that will come from it. And often that's expressed in this this feeling like, well, I regret it so much that I'm going to make it up to God. You can't make it up to God. (laughs) The cross is the only thing that makes it up to God. So that's worldly grief, but godly grief is this. It's repentance unto life repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a gift from God. Uh, as it says in Second 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. It has to be given by God, and we pray that God would give it to those who don't have it right now. But it's a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose, of an endeavor after new obedience it's where you have a sense of your sin and as you sense your sin together with sensing the mercy that God has in Christ towards sinners like you together seeing the the ugliness of your sin together with the beautiful mercy of God in Christ as Christ died for our sins on the cross that we turn from that sin unto God that we turn in our mindset from pursuing sin, from loving sin, to trying to figure out how we can make provision for the flesh to just keep a little door open from it, to, to shut the door and turn in our believing to God with full purpose of new obedience. Now, is, is that repentance? Is, is that something that has to come to the irreligious? Absolutely. Absolutely is it something that has to come to the religious absolutely here's what it says in Acts 20 verse 21 Paul is describing the ministry that he has had around the world and he says I have gone testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ he says in the author of Hebrews says that we have a foundation of our faith it is foundational to have repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It is foundational. If you don't have repentance, you do not have faith, and you do not have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is, and it's expressed in this this idea of the new birth. That it's not enough to just be religious and to just have an idea of affection toward God and, 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 and to go through the motions. And He says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God will circumcise your heart. It is a change and a breaking of the heart that comes from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, to who? To a leader among the Jewish people, a religious leader named Nicodemus, he says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This is a call to repent, not just for the irreligious, not just for the blatantly pagan, but for the religious who have said to themselves, well, I have these advantages. I have these advantages of having been born into the Jewish nation, a child of Abraham, where God has preserved our people. That's what he's directly addressing in chapter 2. But maybe you would say to yourself, kid who grew up in church, maybe you'd say to yourself, well, I sure am glad that I was born into a good family, where my my parents try to raise me with biblical principles. I sure am glad that I've been raised in church. I, I sure am glad that I am not like those kids at school. Maybe you even stayed in that mindset into adulthood, and said to yourself, I've just always believed. I, I've just always known since my childhood. My parents always taught me that God is God. And I've always gone to church and I've always been good and God has always blessed this. Well, it says here, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It, it says here, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, of course, there are those who genuinely were born again early in their lives to where they don't remember the actual experience. But what do we do? Do we, do we go and say, well, I, I want to root through my life for what experience I can base my salvation on? No, it says repentance. Do I have repentance towards sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what it looks like to be born again, to have repentance towards sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is someone who will see the kingdom of God, who has been born again. But do you know what sinful man's heart does? Sinful man's heart looks at this and goes into willful ignorance. Here's what it says at the end of verse 4, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is the one who shows the kindness that is meant to lead to repentance. But when it says not knowing That's the same place where we get our word, ignore. This is not the kind of not knowing where you just didn't know. This is the kind of not knowing where there are signs of this everywhere and you've chosen to look the other way. That's the kind of not knowing that it's talking about here. Not knowing that you need to repent. Why would that be an ignoring, not just a failure, or not just a lack of access to the knowledge, but an ignoring of it? Well, because it's an ignoring of the scriptures. This is addressed primarily to the Jewish people who had, at this point, mainly rejected Christ, and it says that they were ignoring what Jesus says that it is written in all the scriptures that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He says the Old Testament has told you all along that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. The Old Testament has told you all along that beginning in Jerusalem, beginning with the Jewish people, that there must be repentance and forgiveness of sins and going out to all nations. Not just an ignoring of the scriptures, but an ignoring of their own sin sickness. Jesus said to the Pharisees, "Why do you?" The Pharisees said, "Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?" And Jesus answered them, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And Jesus is not saying, "You you don't need to be healed." (laughs) He's saying you are willfully ignoring the cancer that is eating you from the inside out, which is called sin. You are covering it up on the outside with all kinds of religious garb, with all kinds of public rule following, with all kinds of long prayers on the street corners. And he says, You are not going to be healed by the great physician until you acknowledge what is plain and obvious. Acknowledge what you are ignoring, that you are sin-sick and must repent and must believe and must come to the great physician, Jesus Christ, for your healing. Everybody needs to come to faith in Jesus. That's the whole point of Romans 1.18 through 3.20. You need Jesus. You. You. Everybody needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But what happens to those who continue to ignore God's call to repent? What happens to those who keep on belittling and despising and presuming upon the riches of God's kindness? Well, there is a coming judgment. That's what happens. Here's verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says the reason for it The reason for God's wrath is because of your hard and impenitent heart. He doesn't say that the reason that that wrath will be poured out is because God is unjust. Saving some who are notorious sinners and condemning others who are notorious religious people. He doesn't say that the reason that God's wrath is going to be poured out is because uh, he he is just sort of willy-nilly doing it or because he's going back on his promises or anything of the sort. He says, here is the reason that God's wrath will be poured out, because of your hard and impenitent heart. When someone will not turn to the Lord Jesus in faith, the problem isn't God. The problem is a hard heart. The problem is an impenitent heart. It's a heart that erects all kinds of walls between it and God to try to say, here is why I don't need to repent. But it's still true. And the day of judgment is still coming. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, because you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and that's where all of us were. We all were born with hard and impenitent hearts. And we need to pray for God's mercy to give us new hearts, to take out our hearts of stone and to give us heart to flesh. Uh, that's how it's described in Ezekiel. Jesus called it being born again. We pray for that. It's the power of God. He says, because of your heart, penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That storing up, that's related to verse four, where it says the riches of his kindness. And now it says instead of storing up riches, they're going to be storing up wrath. That storing up language, it's the kind of language that you would use if you were saving in a bank or if you were storing up grain for yourself in a silo and building bigger barns, but then one day your soul will be required of you. Are they storing up wealth? Are they storing up kindness? No, if you continue in impenitence and unbelief, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Jesus said that we are to store up treasure in heaven. But for those who won't repent, who won't believe, this is the closest to heaven they'll ever get. And that's sad. Many of many who are in that position would not even recognize that, would grumble and complain against God about the mercy that they're being shown even in this life not knowing the riches of his kindness, ignoring the riches of his kindness, and instead storing up wrath for the day of judgment. You know you can't store up treasure in heaven when you haven't received the free gift of eternal life. You can't work for yourself to store up treasure in heaven. It comes by the grace of God. Without repentance, you are not storing up treasure in heaven. You're storing up wrath in the day of judgment. Here's what it says in Second Peter that that, that, that the... The heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That day of judgment goes to the next thing, that there's going to be a day when God's patience gives way to judgment. It says in verse five, storing up wrath for yourself on the day, the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that word revealed, It is the word that we get apocalypse from. It's the day when all of the curtains come down, when all mankind stands before God with nothing to hide. Nothing hidden, I guess I should say. And God will judge. Christ will sit on his glorious throne. He will separate the sheep from the goats on that day. There is a day fixed when Jesus will return, when Jesus will raise the dead, when Jesus will raise those who are righteous by faith in him to eternal life, and Jesus will raise those who are the wicked by failure to repent and believe in him. He will raise them to eternal judgment to be cast into the lake of fire. And it says in Acts 17, the times of ignorance, times of ignorance, that ignorance is that not knowing that ignoring God's kindness, but the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere, which means all people except for your special situation because you and God are good, right? All people everywhere. All people in America. All people around the world. All of the Jewish people, all of the Gentile people, all of the people who grew up in church, all of the people who grew up in hippie compounds, everybody, all people everywhere. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent, including you, because, Paul says in that great sermon in Athens, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day. The day of judgment is on the calendar. It is there. The foolish, unbelieving heart says everything will just continue as it is until one day the earth tumbles into the sun and that's it. But God says, I have a day on the calendar. I have fixed the day of judgment. For every single one of us, there is coming a day when you will meet God. Even if it's before that great apocalyptic day of judgment, you will meet God when you die. And it could be today. He fixed the day when you were born, and he has fixed the day when you will die. And he has fixed the day of final judgment. You will face God. It's on the calendar. And the call here is not to presume upon the riches of God's kindness and say, he's been patient to me so far, I've still got time to work it out. He has a day coming. When is the day that you should repent and believe? Now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Because the day is coming when it says in Second Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with all his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints now what i want to do is i want to turn you to the hope that we have okay Like I said, we we are in the middle of a long section of Romans that just is showing over and over, you need Jesus. There is a depth of depravity of all mankind where we must repent and believe or we are doomed, but there is hope that's coming. Here is hope for the nation of Israel. As this chapter is addressed especially to those of the Jewish nation, here is hope for the Jewish nation. In Romans 11, It says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, meaning unbelief in the Lord Jesus. But you who believe, you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in, For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Why did I read you all that? Because it just gives us so much hope right there that even those who are among the children of Abraham who rejected their own Savior and established a religion called modern Judaism a religion of rejection of their own Savior. Even to them, God has given just a massive amount of mercy and hope and and, and a a still outstretched hand to come to him in faith and repentance and to believe there is hope for Israel. And he's given hope to the unbelieving and unrepentant of all nations. What's that hope? Hope. Well, it's in Acts 3. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. He says it right there. He just says, turn to him. Your sins will be washed away. Come to Jesus in faith and repentance. And here is the hope that we cling to as those who believe those who have repented, those who are continuing to repent as believers. In Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. I said earlier that if those, for, for those who will not repent, will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever kindness you have in this life, that is the closest you will ever get to heaven. But did you know that for us who believe, even with the massive riches of God's mercy that he pours out on us in this life that we need to be overwhelmingly thankful for, this is the closest to hell that we will ever be. And he is storing up the eternal riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ that will be ours. Oh, thank you for that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us Jesus as we were unrepentant, unbelieving sinners lost because of our hard and penitent hearts that, that you sent Jesus for us. You've showed your love for us that we, even while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. God, I pray that as you show that kindness, that forbearance, that patience, I pray that this opportunity to repent that you give to so many throughout the world, that this opportunity would be something that by the power of your Holy Spirit that they would embrace as we go and tell the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I thank you for us who believe. Uh, God, thank you for that incredible gift that we completely don't deserve that has been given to us in Christ. God, I pray that you would continue to lead us in righteousness and in repentance and in not presuming upon the kindness that you've given us. God, you are holy, and we, Lord, we, we rejoice in your saving unholy people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.